Good morning. I'm Claudia Shamba, your host, welcoming you to the February 14, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Since it's Valentine's Day, I thought it would be fitting and proper to take up sexual harassment and other workplace hazards with attorney and consultant Teresa McQueen. She has a niche practice in Irvine and has offered to speak with us for the whole hour. Take note and take notes. We'll be right back after station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Teresa McQueen, attorney, human resources consultant, and trainer involved in preventing harassment at the workplace. We devote the whole program to this topic with Teresa in order to get it all down, to get it right, to help people on both sides of the employment coin avoid harmful, life-changing developments at the workplace. It's enlightened work. It's timely that we cover it. Teresa formed Sapphire Legal in Irvine last June after seeing the need for a different type of employment law firm, one which combines her litigation and transactional experience to provide employers and employees with education, training, and legal advice on establishing and maintaining successful workplace relationships. Teresa McQueen has published numerous articles for legal journals and handbooks and is regularly on the speaking circuit. Prior to founding Sapphire Legal, she practiced law at Peterson Law Firm. An OC Bar Association member, she's the past president of the Bar Association's solo small firm section. She's been recognized as a Southern California Super Lawyers Rising Star and as 2013 Top Women Attorney by Law and Politics and the publishers of Los Angeles Magazine. She completed her undergraduate degree in dance at the University of Idaho, Moscow, Idaho, and her law degree at Chapman University. She joins me in studio today. Welcome, Teresa McQueen, to Ask a Leader. Good morning, Claudia. Thanks for inviting me. We are glad that we're, we're making the Valentine theme. It's working. It's everything you do. It's so enlightened. It's upfront. Everybody wins by taking the special care. And this is what could be a more fitting kind of Valentine tribute. Exactly. Then love your neighbor, your coworker. Before we have you define each of the kinds of workplace problems that you address in your practice, tell us how it is that you started this kind of work in general? So people, you know, there's something in their background, either in their work experience, and you, you had very interesting work experience in the casino sector that taught you a lot about lots of things. But I, where along the way did you realize that this sexual harassment stuff really needed to, to be handled and well? Well, I just, I, I'd like to say I had a burning desire to, to represent people in that arena. Unfortunately, I didn't. Uh, I got into my area of practice like a lot of attorneys did. Okay. There was a need for it in our firm. Uh, we had a couple of attorneys who were doing all of our employment law cases, and they left the firm. And so we needed someone to take over the cases. I had done some litigation and thought it sounded interesting, and um, employment law was a great area as I soon discovered, and that's how I came to, to start practicing employment law on the litigation side. Okay. 
Well, your own work experience, as I said, includes the casino sector. And was there anything that you noticed? Was it that managed well in your experience? I mean, is, is, does it, is it a kind of a gold standard, you think, for employee relations? I think so. I I think one of the things I had on early on in, in working in that environment, I did end up being sexually harassed in the workplace and had to have by that handled. By customers or by the employees? was by a supervisor. Oh, geez. So, but um, the company handled it great. The company did the right thing. It was handled immediately. And I didn't have a lot of of the normal things that I think a lot of, uh, especially my clients, go through when they... Uh, make a claim of sexual harassment in the workplace. Okay. Well, in preparation for this interview, the importance of doing it, it continued to mount. You made an important legal distinction, and I'm going to quote, and we're going to be working on this, folks. There'll be a, a public service announcement. But to force or to condition aspects of your employment on having sex is rape, and that is a crime. And I think that we don't realize that it that line has been crossed in so extraordinarily clear way it actually has you know harassment takes so many types and let's um, talk about those so there's visual verbal or physical uh, types of harassment harassment in the workplace is actually it takes on a lot of different forms of course we're talking today about sexual harassment so of course there's harassment based on sex which is a protected category both under federal and state law and under that auspice of sexual harassment there's there's a couple of different types that are usually pretty prevalent. It's usually a, you can find a quid pro quo, okay. which is a this for that type of harassment. So it's, they tend to refer to it sometimes as economic harassment because it's, it's conditioning a benefit of employment on a return of a sexual favor. And there's also harassment based on sex, sexual conduct that creates what they call a hostile work environment. Then there's also, well, Harassment based on any protected category is going to create a hostile work environment. Some of those aspects fall into other types, including uh, abusive conduct now. I think, you know, the, the mainstream term is uh, bullying in the workplace. Under law, they usually uh, term it to be uh, abusive conduct. But that can also be based on sex, gender, anything that would fall under that category. And so let's go over there the various uh, codified regulations, both on the state and the federal level. Let's go over them. Repeated infliction of verbal abuse, that's uh, like derogatory remarks, insults, correct, epithets, verbal or physical conduct that a reasonable person would find threatening, in- intimidating or humiliating, gratuitous sabotage of undermining a person's work performance. Um, there, where's a good example of that? Well, that's basically what you've just described is abusive conduct in the workplace, harassing conduct. In my mind, it all kind of falls under the same thing. It's funny to try to, when I do trainings on harassment in the workplace, I go through these things and I go through all the harassment. And then now law mandates that we also talk about this abusive conduct. And you find yourself saying the same sorts of things and saying this applies both to any protected category. They're exactly what you'd think. The, the abusive conduct standards tend to be more, to me, that's a bit of a fine line because you're really getting into behavior in the workforce. It's almost, almost a bit nitpicky. It can be, depending on the workplace environment. But you are looking at things where people are, it's the more subtle forms. Um, sometimes harassment can be very obvious, if you will, a touching, a comment, a, a visual, somebody puts up a 
picture of a naked person or a, a some sort of rude joke that's being illustrated in a cartoon in the workplace. The abusive conduct, it, it almost sort of flies under the radar. It can be subtle sabotage of a work environment based on someone who feels slighted, con- some sort of sexual conduct that went on that was either, you know, recorded or, or not um, in, that, in that context. Okay. And single acts don't meet this definition unless it's severe or egregious. Do you have an example of when like one single act is, that's it, folks? Well, I always I always explain that it's the Please standard do. the standard for harassment is actually quite high. It has to be severe or pervasive, such as it affects the terms and conditions of the work environment. So I always explain it. Severe is something like uh, unless you have the hand up the skirt of the unconscious dental patient, you're really looking at conduct that pervades the workplace on a regular basis. It's a repeated, ongoing. It can be those subtle things, but over a long period of time that sort of permeates the workplace and makes it a a bad place to be. So um, this is kind of a psychoanalytical aspect to it, but that's that's what your practice takes in. Is it it the case that the receiver of the harassment is not aware for a while? It's it's pervasive. It's sort of subtle until finally it seems like they, they come to a reckoning. Wait a minute. This is all racket, ratcheting up as an abusive kind of environment to be working in. Is that is that what happens? They sort of, it's so subtle, it's just kind of, they're gaslit for quite a while before they realize that they're being abused. I think, yes, I think that can definitely happen. I think it, it one of two forms. It either happens, as you said, it's sort of subtle. People have a hard time, I think, realizing when something's happening to them in that context, they get this idea of sort of, is this really happening? Right. Is this what I think it is? Should I be offended or should I go along with this or will there be retribution or something? You know? Right. I think that all goes into the into the mindset behind it. And so it can be something, a sort of slow creep, if you will, right. of conduct that somebody finds all of a sudden, yeah, I, re- I really think this is offensive. I think this is unwanted. I think this is harassing. It could also be an instance where a lot of people think that an occasional comment, and maybe this is the same as the slow creep, but an occasional comment, an occasional gesture. Most people will not run to someone right away and say, hey, so-and-so said something to me that I, I found offensive, or this conduct happened. It's usually people are kind of mindful of this stuff and they want to make sure that if they're going to say something, that there really is something to complain about. That they're right. not just running off and saying, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling tales here. I'm not sure if it's happening or not. Most people, because of the implications of filing a claim in the workplace or filing a claim with the government, they usually want to make sure that, yeah, I think this is really going on. So... We'll talk about some tips, but maybe we can do it as we're talking about various indications here is that what do you recommend for people who are wondering about that in their way of documenting that? How do they make a note on this day? This is what utterance I was, you know, sort of subjected to or something like that. Well, I think what's the the defensive sort of mechanism here to use well i've seen it both ways of course in the litigation arena you see everything after the fact and i've seen where people have come in with handwritten journals on this day so and so this happened touched 
said, wrote a note, received an email, texted me, whatever it might be. On the other hand, you'll see people come in where things had gone on for a while and maybe one big thing happened. The one big thing where they said, yeah, this they is inappropriate. They were locked in the boardroom. Right. I mean, the boardroom doors shut. There's just two of them there and they're being sort of <laughs> various things. Yes. Let your mind wander, I guess. But I, I think, yes. And so they'll make a note of the one big thing that happened. A lot of people will keep email trails or maintain text that they find inappropriate on their cell phones. So you really see it in a variety of ways. The fear is there's so much fear attached to it. And I think the fear is people don't also don't want to come across as not a team player. Right. Or I've been documenting everything. I've just been looking for something like this. And finally, here it is. And mm. I, I don't really see that on the litigation side. Of course, my firm, we were very, we did a lot of due diligence before we took any of our cases. Right. So when we'd get to that point, someone would come in with a lot of documentation or very little documentation. It really doesn't stop the litigation one way or the other. It does not. Okay. Credibility does. So as long as that person is credible in the fact that they know what happened to them, they were there, this is how it made them feel, this is how it affected their workplace, as long as the credibility is there, whether they have the documentary evidence to back it up doesn't make a whole lot of difference one way or the other. It's really more credible. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Teresa McQueen, an employment lawyer and human resource consultant who also offers business etiquette and civility training, I say. And so we're talking about, it's first this offense and the different forms that it's taking. We're, we'll get into her niche practice in a bit with the sort of preventative kinds of areas that are near to dear to me that we can be proactive about this kind of thing because it's this is making the worker, the employee, less productive. That takes more and more bandwidth up. They're wondering they're under assault. It's har harassment's an assault. I, I think you're right. But I think really when it comes to harassment in the workplace, everybody loses. Yes. So not only does the employee lose out on the having the benefit of a secure, uh, functioning workplace, but the employers lose out too. Because as you say, you know, productivity is affected. Their liability risk goes up. The turnover, a lot of people won't deal with it face on. They don't want to make a complaint for whatever reason. And one of the ways that people handle that is to simply leave, transfer to a different department, transfer to another division in a different state or a different city. And I think the employers lose out on that. Plus, I think in this day and age of internet communication and social media, there's very credible websites now where people can go on and actually feel comfortable saying how they feel about the workplace. Right. And I think that that's a lot of employers are starting to take that very seriously, that they don't want to see on some of these social media websites the bad aspects of their company. I think they'd rather know about them in-house and be able to deal with them than to take the hit on the company brand and not be able, because it prevents them from getting good workers. Right, of course, of course. Well, would the injury also be the co-workers too, that other people are witnessing this and they're affected by it too, aren't they? Of course, there's a lot of instances where we've even taken cases from the, you know, the white knight 
plaintiff, the plaintiff who wasn't actually harassed in the workplace but witnessed it or was made aware of someone else being harassed, brought it to the employer's attention and then uh, experienced retaliation for having brought the claim to the attention in the first place. So I I think it does. It's painful to watch the colleagues that you care about um, and that you enjoy working with go through something that's bothering them that much that they're considering leaving or transferring or their work suffers because it it just takes many forms. And so in preparation, I I gave an example of a, it was a mild transgression and this was a, a springboard for you to tell me who all are the what the categories of the transgressors are it could be anybody you can name in the workplace that that's somebody who is an itinerant contra uh, a maintenance person it could tell us all of the categories of individuals that are fair game for being busted for this harassment <laughs> well it's of course supervisors managers anybody in the workplace employee when it comes to harassment a, a client Uh, Anybody. So anybody that comes into the workplace. So the employer is charged with protecting its employees from its employees, right, from itself. So those that work in in the organization, they're also charged with protecting their employees from anyone that enters into the workplace or even if they're not physically entering the building, that they're interacting with the workers. So clients, vendors, independent contractors, everybody's protected in that employment context when it comes to harassment. Okay, that's really important that everybody can un- understand that. Will the, okay, EEOC, Employment, Equal employment Opportunity Commission, <laughs> the Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace last June pronounced that although progress has been made, since discrimination was prohibited in the 60s, man, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the task force, quote, sadly and too often, we still have far to go, is what their pronouncement was. That was the Obama administration. Now we have Andrew Puzder, CEO of Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Enterprises. He has a record of sexual harassment. I was hearing on a sister public radio station yesterday a, a claimant talking about what she had to deal with at the workplace, as well as past claims of his of spousal abuse, which were recently withdrawn. So that's that sort of muddies his background there. As the just appointed labor secretary, though, Andrew Puzder, uh, among other cabinets, signals a minimum of interest in the current administration's interest in managing this problem. So tell us, what were some of the significant changes and whether from the findings of the EOC last summer and whether any of these prescriptions will endure during the current administration. Right. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission did a, <laughs> did a select task force study on harassment in the workplace, as you said, that came out in June. I'm not sure Pudzer's been confirmed yet. I think his, aren't his, He's about, right. his confirmation sort of hearings are the, today I right, think, right. or, or I, this week. I wasn't sure if it was going to be by the time we were meeting here on the station. So, it's yes, it's pending. So. Right. Right. It was an interesting survey, and, and I think the task force was very informative. And some of the things that I found most striking were the claims, uh, a couple of them. One was that, so they only have statistics now. When this came out in 2016, they only had statistics from 2015 on the number of complaints that have been filed at the EEOC. And I thought it was interesting that I think it was something like one-third of the 90-some thousand charges included an allegation of workplace harassment. And I think that number, it's interesting how the statistics are done because they do them based on their claims of harassment, discrimination, retaliation based on protected categories. Okay. 
the way that it works, there's usually, you find this at the state and the federal level, almost every claim for discrimination and harassment usually includes a claim of retaliation for either having reported or some sort of protected conduct. So it sort of skews the numbers. I think when you look at the statistics, the highest rated claim, of course, is one of retaliation. But it's usually because that's connected to so many of the other types. But I I thought that was very telling. I thought it was still a significant number. The other thing that I thought it goes along with kind of what I already knew and, and felt to be true was that the harassment just usually goes unreported. And I think be- because of the retaliation, it's so well known. I think so. And That's I a think very complicated arrangement. Absolutely. And I think people are the natural instinct with most people is they either just try to avoid the harasser or deny it or just downplay that it ever happened. Or again, they try to find a, made a, way, a way to make it work, switch work, switch shifts, jobs, divisions, departments states, whatever it might be, rather than to take formal action. And I think the study found it was three out of four people never even talked to their supervisor about the fact that they'd experienced harassment in the workplace. Now, this study is based on all forms of harassment, based on all protected categories, not just sexual harassment in the workplace. But I think it's very applicable because it it applies to the same thing. I mean, people just don't want to report it. They're worried that they're not going to be believed or there's going to be inaction on part of the claim. I've had clients who've said, well, I didn't report anything because I knew so-and-so reported it and this supervisor, this HR person never did anything about it. So I have no confidence that the company is going to do anything about it or they worry about being blamed for it or some, you know, professional retaliation, social retaliation in some way. And it's very real and it's, it's a big deterrent, I think. The thing that I also felt was interesting about the task force report was the fact that, in their opinion, that the training that's taken place over the last 30-some years on preventing harassment in the workplace has just been ineffective. And I, I find that really amazing. Well, there's your niece. You're the one who they're going to call. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> harassment busters. <laughs> well, so I, while you're talking about this, it makes me wonder, does the military, do they file claims with the EEOC like any civilian would? You know, that's a really good question, or and do I don't know. they have their own kind of uh, sort of tribunal system? that Because we, we've known of many, many cases where it's been a real hard-fought kind of reform within the military the, with the kind of a, the culture there that it is. It, it's fomenting this. Absolutely. I don't really do anything. I don't, I've never really had any experience in any military sort of aspects of it. I would wager that, yes, they more than likely do because they have their own internal. There's JAG Corps, so they have their own ways of handling those things, and there's also military law. So I believe those claims are dealt with within the, the particular branch of service and into which those claims are filed. So that we could bump that 90,000 up for 2015 with, with with other branches that have their own kind of system. Yeah, it could be. I, I just don't know you what know? the if the EEOC takes that particular uh, segment into consideration in its statistics. And so with the economy, it's improving, but that the economy still being tough and for protected kinds of categories that you're talking about, it's like it could be an age-related, there's all, all those categories that it for certain protected categories, there is a greater risk for 
making a claim with that retaliation and with difficulty in a not a fluid labor market with our economy still struggling, still sputtering out of the recession. So it's, the workers are not as mobile in other kinds of employment opportunities, unlike what the, the president mentioned. If there was harassment, then this person could just go find another job. And there was, I'm sure you had a real reaction to that. Well, I think there was a time where, yes, that's true. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think it's a bad generalization in the fact that there's so many things that go into that analysis. If you're talking about a single 20-something-year-old who can move fluidly from one job to the next or one state to the next, sure. It depends on what market they're in as well. If they have marketable skills, maybe it is easier for them to find a job. But if you're talking about a different segment of the population, if you're talking about single parents or people over the age of 50, it's not as easy to just say, okay, fine, I'll go get another job somewhere. Not in this market anyway, and it's been that way for for a long time. And let's say it's also difficult to replicate a compensation package that you perhaps worked very hard for. Your, Your insurance may change, and that will take a hit on your own kind of family budget. I mean, there's so many elements that are affected by that. There's so much affected by it. It's not just the economics, but there is an economic component to it. And it's one that we see in litigation, of course, uh, in certain circumstances when you're asking for future damages based on the fact that exactly what you said, I'm not going to be able to, it's going to take me a while now that I've been terminated from this job to go and find another one that's going to get me at the same level. Right. And, but it's the other tolls that it takes. It's the social, it's the professional, it's the hit to your professional self, it's the hit to your personal self. Because being out of work, for whatever reason, makes it very difficult to get past. Um, We tell litigants all the time, if it would just take an apology, it'd be so much easier, but you're never going to get an apology. And a lot of people have a very difficult time getting over the fact that the civil litigation route compensates you for nothing but money because it's a corporate world. It's, it's a civil environment, and the only way to make recompense for that is with money. So it's not the day that people, are, that people think it's going to be. A day in oh. court is not always what they think it's going to be, and it does take a toll. I've had clients who've never been able to let it go and who will always take a piece of that anger with them and that frustration over what they experienced and how it had affected their lives with them. Very few clients who can get beyond it and let it go completely because there's always that concern, could it happen again? Well, we'll we'll talk about where your niche practice can deal with perhaps those elements as well because of the etiquette and all that. But um, So I think we've talked about protected classes. I just want to run through, I understand that's race, religious creed, color, national origin, ancestry, physical disability, mental disability, medical condition, genetic information, marital status, sex, gender, gender identity, gender expression, age for individuals over 40 years of age, military and veteran status and sexual orientation. So it's sort of, everybody can recognize something in there. So... Let's start with what the uh, state-level anti-harassment policies, guidelines, enforcement are, and that, that's out of the California Fair Employment and Housing Act of 1959. You're practicing law in this state, but for those that are living and working out of state, they don't have these protections. Does California's Fair Employment and Housing Act 
is it a, a bit of a, a higher, more golden standard than what other states have? And so we have to be concerned about people that are harmed in other states. Well, California definitely is kind of the gold standard, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. We do offer a lot of protections for employees. The Fair Employment and Housing Act or the FEHA has great protections, but not every state has that. So, as a, of course, there are the federal protections under the Title VII and, and um, age, uh, age discrimination statutes and the American with Disabilities Act. So there are federal protections, but California protections are more extensive than that. So in California, we usually, you have to go with the law that's more protective of the employee. So in California, you're usually litigating under the Fair Employment and Housing Act as opposed to federal law. Okay. So it requires, among other things, that it requires communication, prevention training, and that's the shingle that you've hung. Let's really open this all the way up. If the, the topic must be handled in a meaningful manner, tell us about how you contribute to this, and uh, let's, let's open it all the way up. What your prevention offers the corporate setting. I mean, how does it, somebody go to you to get started with you looking at their guidelines and sort of the infrastructure of employee relations? Well, employees always come from different perspectives. It'll be sometimes a new HR person will come into the company and realize that they're either lacking in policies or they haven't had it updated in a long time. And so they'll contact me to find out, can you do a review of our handbook or these are the policies that we're doing? And do you think there's a, some sort of stirrings that something's going on, or it's just their wish to do to do right, just to do their job? I get a lot of employers who just want to do it right, Okay. who just want to make sure that they're protecting their employees and they're protecting the company as best they can. Okay. So they go to you, and you, you take a look at, and you're probably appalled sometimes, like, are you kidding? This is before Anita Hill versus Clarence Thomas at Vintage, or uh, maybe some of the, most of them probably changed after 1991. I think most Their people are pretty good about about keeping um, policies updated. There have been some interesting handbooks and policies that I've seen, but I think for the most part, nothing. Uh, what I've seen a lot of is actually employers who have raised the bar even higher than what they're required to do under California law which sort of puts them in a, in a bit of a quandary. And I don't know if that's overly zealous drafters of, of their prior handbooks, but you can actually, if you're not careful, you can actually create a standard that's higher than what you're required to comply with under California law. And when it comes to litigation, that's the standard that co your company is going to be held to. If your policy says... Right. But that's an added value factor, though. That's better for the employees. Absolutely. They but benefit. They do benefit, but only everybody only benefits if that's actually what's going on. Okay. So what you don't want it to be the fear from an employer standpoint, of course, is to be beat over the head repeatedly in litigation with a policy no. that's above and beyond the standard, because then they're still standing there saying, well, but we did what was required under California law. Yes, but your policy says X, Y, and Z. So where's the discrepancy coming from? You said overzealous human resources person they just they wanted just to look like they're doing a good job but it's but that that's a, a liability it could be not necessarily an, an overly zealous in-house hr person but whoever drafted the 
the well, it could be, I guess, if they just if they did their own policies, if they got them uh, off the internet without any direction or that's part of the problem is there's a lot of information out there. Okay, right. But unless you understand how the particular language is going to be applied, applying it without direction can lead to a problem. In most cases, will it be fine? Probably. But it's the subtleties, that's the benefit you get when you get counseling on what the policy actually says, what it what, what does the law require, what does this policy say, and what's the best way to implement it. So that's the value you get by seeking advice when it comes to implementing particular policies. So the rules concerning compliant and investigative process from FEHA, the federal, um, the Fair Employment Housing Act, they require confidentiality and they, they timeliness is a prompt uh, corrective action, timely disclosure without any retaliation. And how is enforcement of these guidelines going? I, I think it's going well. I mean, the the interesting part about the confidentiality, it's it kind of yeah. goes back to the nature of the of the claim and the reason people get worried about it. Even under the guidelines from both federal and state law, you can't say with 100% certainty we'll be able to keep this confidential. Because they do have a duty to promptly investigate any claims that are brought to them, the nature of harassment, especially when it comes to sexual harassment, well, I guess when it comes to any sort of harassment, right. it's very difficult sometimes to keep the harasser anonymous or to keep the complainer anonymous. If it was a one-on-one thing, when the harasser's confronted, whether they deny it or not, if it actually took place and it was a one-on-one situation, they know who they said that to, or they know who they did that to, or they know who they interacted with. So even though you, you may, as an HR professional or an investigator, never mentioned that particular employee's name, it's sometimes very easy to connect the dots. And well, that can cause a problem. Maybe, or it's a, it's a standard line. Everybody's heard that. A manager say those kinds of things. Say, or it's sort of the, like an idiomatic kind of piece that there's like a, a, a vocabulary f- fingerprint, you know, that, that implicates them. They know. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, I think so. So... So this confidentiality is a big problem then. It can be a big problem because it's one, it's a deterrent. It's unattainable. Even if you're looking at your company's policy to say, okay, I, I want to I want to make a formal complaint. What do I do? I go to my handbook, I look at the policies and procedures, and I have it right here tells me I need to tell my supervisor. But then you read a little bit farther and it says we will do everything we can to maintain confidentiality, but of oh, yada yada yada. So if you're looking at that, you stop for a moment, you think, oh, okay. Hmm. So this means that I'm not going to be able to do this anonymously. There is every possibility that what I say and what I do is going to become public and people are going to know I did it and I said it and I filed a complaint. So I think that right there would stop anybody. It'd make me pause. I, 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 don't, sure. I think it would make everybody pause because you're looking at your livelihood. You're looking at your your place of employment, especially if you love where you work. Right. Well, that's a big flag there then. So in your training, is there a way that either in the way the guidelines are written or in how employees interact and all that, is there, is there some way to deal with that? I mean, that's, that's a hard one to have go away. That's part of the infrastructure. To deal with the confidentiality yes. issue? 
I think you just have to train people so that they're they're aware of the situation and that they're stopping to think about how they handle it. So a lot of times, a lot of the training I do has to do with helping people to deal with difficult situations in the workplace. Right. These types of things would be considered from an HR perspective to be a difficult situation in the workplace. Employee comes to you or supervisor comes to you and says, I have an employee who's reported this. So unless you take a moment to stop, think about your actions, think about the possible paths that you can take, the choices that you can make, and making sure that you're choosing the actions that are going to preserve that confidentiality as much as you can mm-hmm. before you make a decision, before you take, take any action, and then making a decision from those choices as to what's going to what's going to maintain the confidentiality the best, what's going to make sure to try to preserve the relationships in the workplace, and then carry those out with as much honesty and sincerity and confidence as you can. So more reflection in generally administering. That's a, that's a tall order, though. Well, everybody's chasing their tail, make, making a meeting goals and that kind of thing. For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web around the world on KUCI.org, and we're on Tumblr. We're on every social media platform you can imagine. My guest is Teresa McQueen, an employment lawyer and human resources consultant who also offers business etiquette and civility training. And we're, that's right where we are in the middle of now is where we can hear from her expertise how she can intervene in the preventative mechanisms of getting ahead of this transgression of sexual harassment. So how do you decide upon what the most appropriate course of action is to take on behalf of your client? I'm, I'm kind of going back a little bit, uh, back to the litigation, but not the um, preventative side. You're as you are still litigating some of these cases. You're you're not litigating anymore. No, that was the that was the new that was the business whole idea. Model. Okay, yep, that was the new so, business model. So you're but you'll maybe you're gonna do you refer people to though attorneys that will do that or you're just it's not a part of it. No, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I talk with both employers and employees, and so when I get an employee who calls me wondering okay. what their rights are or do they have a case, if I think that there's something there, I'll definitely refer them to an attorney. Okay, so tell us about what you've learned. You talked in preparation of this interview about mock trials that you conduct, and sometimes they give you some sort of counterintuitive information. Tell us what your mock trials what you, that you set up to find out how a client's scenario would be received by prospective jurors. Okay, so I have to step back. So at the Please beginning, I, I have to make make this make this co- one correction. So my former firm is actually Pedersen McQueen. Pe- oh, okay, um, gee. They're now Pedersen Law, because they had to change their name when I left. Okay. So. <laughs> oh, I was going by that banner head from, okay, okay. So thank you. So yes, I, I want to make that correction. Please. I want to honor my former law partner, Yeah. make sure that I get his name correctly. So when several years ago, we had taken on a sexual harassment case, and being a small firm, mock trials are not something that we would normally do, but where you bring in perspective, you bring in people to come in and sit as jurors, you put on a portion of your case and kind of get feedback. It's like hiring your own, being your own jury consultant in a way. So we had a sexual harassment case that we wanted some feedback on. The harassment had gone on for a significant period of time. 
and we had we wanted to find out how we thought certain things were going to play out with the jury. One of the things I thought was interesting was I had mentioned to my law partner going in that I felt that the jurors that we were going to have to worry about were going to be the younger jurors. And my thinking was that older the older jurors who have been out in the workplace would have been around the block once or twice, would, would have a better understanding that the clients had gone through this and, and that it had gone on for a significant period of time and all of the ramifications. That what I found out was that was not the case. What actually was our older jurors were harsher on the plaintiffs than the younger jurors. Wow. And it was this interesting idea of kind of this been there, done that mantle that they had taken on. And I, I just found it very interesting. It was absolutely not what I thought was going to happen. And it played out very interesting. Now, I don't think that in this, it, that was several years ago. It was okay. probably close to 10 years or so ago. All right. But the interesting thing is, I don't think I don't think that would be the case now. I think that case going to, you know, in front of a mock jury would have a completely different outcome. I think that people now at, at this point in time are so much more aware of these issues and aware of the dynamics that this idea that you were in the workplace for how long and this was going on and you didn't, you waited until, you know, this period of time to say something. And I think nowadays people would would have a better idea of how that works and the dynamics that we had two you know two women in the workplace one was a single mother it was this one dynamic was it's not easy to go get another job and the economy was kind of in the tanker at that point Mm -hmm. and the other person just loved their job they didn't they'd been there a very long time and so it's a testament i think to what people are willing to put up with (sighs) before it really gets to be too much so when high profile harassment cases are on everybody's radar, does that bump up incoming calls you get from clients, from either Pedersen McQueen or from McQueen Sapphire Legal? Not really. I think what tends to trigger uh, employees calling more about their rights tends to be the economy, of all things. So when the economy went really bad, we saw an influx of all kinds of harassment, discrimination type cases. But I haven't seen necessarily, and and other people may see it differently, but I didn't notice from our perspective uh, at the firm or now from Sapphire that there's been an uptake with the more recent uh, sexual harassment cases. They're rather high profile. So let's have you talk directly now to the services that you render, breaking it down with your consultation and training and legal representation. Some tips you offer because you're you're adding a tremendous value in productivity, goodwill, all, all kinds of things that are maybe not directly linked to the tangible guidelines and the, the improved guidelines, but tell us about what you do when you go into the workplace. What are some things that you, in, in this the moments that we have still together here, that you see are glaring issues that you're when you step in, you can really address them and make it right at the workplace. Two things that come to mind first. One, there's usually, uh, I find, a breakdown at the, at the middle management level, so managers and supervisors. You tend to see where they have either 
it tends to take the form of of a judgment call. So you get an employee who has an issue, they take it to a supervisor, and the supervisor makes a judgment call. Well, I don't see it that way. Well, I don't think it's that big of a problem, or I can't imagine that particular employee acting like that. I've known them for years, and it stops there. Or you end up with that same analysis at an HR level, at a higher level, Okay. where they're sort of making the same judgment. So what I do when I go in, that's a lot of the focus of the training is to train the employees on this is what your policy says. This is what your responsibilities are. And it's not for you to make a judgment call. And in some cases, it's a huge relief. I mean, the supervisors understand that as long as they recognize something might possibly be going on, it's their job to pass it up the chain. If somebody comes to them, it's their job to pass it up the chain. It's a relief not to say they don't have to make that decision. Okay. Whether it is or it isn't, it doesn't matter. It's it, it which is great because as you know, it's it's that whole pornography thing. I I know right. it when I see it. Right. But it's so subjective. So training them and teaching them to identify the signs and the signals and not to ignore the signs and the signals as opposed to focusing on watch out for these words, look out for these particular actions, take it more of a holistic approach, okay. know what's going on in the workplace and be able to report that up the chain. And the civility side, it's nice because it's not going in to be the nice police. I'm definitely not the nice police, but I like to be able to come in and to help train them on how to resolve difficult situations in the workplace. And that can run the gamut from how to deal with uh, you know, a Dilbertville situation where it's cubicles all around and, and the harassing conduct that that can, that can generate, as well as just difficult situations when employees report to you. How do you handle that? How do you maintain that work environment? What should you do to make that work in the interim? Once the report's been made, how do I handle it? How do I handle these employees? How do I how do I make it work? How do I make sure that things are getting done timely? There's follow-up, there's follow-through, there's report back, those sorts of things. So you're being called on when there's already some kind of a problem. It's not like they're saying, oh, we're going to tidy up all of our our employee manuals and we thought we'd have you come in on the front end. You, There is something, there's something running amok when you're called. Usually that's what it is. I'd like to, I mean, that in starting Sapphire Legal, that was part of my hope was that to be able to get in with companies who want to do the right thing and want to make sure that these preventative measures are taken ahead of time to give themselves the best um, possible chance they have of, of managing their risk when it comes to this kind of liability. But unfortunately, some employers are like that. I've had some of those employers who say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We'd love to have you come in and talk about uh, civility in the workplace or any type of business etiquette training, how to difficult, you know, how to handle difficult situations, that kind of stuff. But it's, for the most part, it's, we've had an issue in the past. We're looking at an issue. We just avoided an issue. We realize there's a problem now. How can you help? So when you, we were talking about a situation where harassment is occurring, in your civility training, do you give some tips on how, in that moment, an employee will deal with that? Push back, in, in other words, with that harassing going on. Stop that. I don't, I don't appreciate your saying that. I mean, are, are, in your civility training, what do you equip the, 
either the, I don't want to say the perspective recipients of the harassment, but uh, do you give some kind of civility training t that equips armors all employees to push back on harassment that's occurring as opposed to running a, uh, a complaint through the, the system? Yes. It's not I mean, so like really preventing now. We're talking about right when it's starting to, the, the, this dynamic is occurring. I think there's a couple of aspects to that. One, there's the, there's the legal side of that. There's the idea that the best way to train employees on that sort of thing is so that they all know what their policies and procedures say, and they know what the law is. So if your company doesn't have policies or procedures, you know that harassment in the workplace is not allowed. And you can file a complaint with a federal agency or a state agency, whether or not you want to file it with your employer. So there's that aspect of okay. it. The, um, and, and so that they know what their reporting requirements are within their company, if there's any uh, administrative hoops that they need to go through, making sure they're aware of that. And that they can always go to their supervisor, they have open door policies, whatever that might be. On the etiquette side of it, the civility part of it, that really goes back to teaching them basically the principles of etiquette. So it's engendering a work environment that is based on consideration, respect, and honesty. And in dealing with those difficult situations, making sure that they understand that the way they're going to engender that type of work environment is when you're faced with that type of a difficult situation. Okay. That you are, again, thinking about your actions. How am I going to handle this? Who's involved? How are they involved? How can I handle this? What are my what are my options? What are my choices? And then thinking about the ramifications of each of those choices on the relationship, the work relationship, the professional environment, how you're affected, the other person, the company, and then picking a solution, coming up with a solution, whether it's saying to this person, hey, I find this really offensive and okay. I would appreciate it if you would stop. Before you get to the actual words you're going to use, you really have to have thought through the, oh, yes. the actions, thought about the ramifications, come up with solutions, and then really take an ownership of what that solution is going to be and have the confidence to carry out that solution. Because if you haven't really thought it through. Oh, you're broadsided usually. Anyway. And you're not going to say it with much conviction. If no. you've thought through the ramifications of telling supervisor X, Y, and Z over there, that you don't appreciate this particular type of behavior. If you don't own that in your heart, you're going to have you're going to run into problems, right? You need right. to own it. You need to make sure that yes, this is what I think it is. I've thought this through. I understand that maybe my confidentiality is going to be compromised or supervisor XYZ is not going to be very happy with me, but based on everything that I've already went through in my head, this is what I need to do. And I'm here to tell you that offensive that behavior offends me so or whatever that might be that's a, a preventative kind of a, a manual you're giving us then this actually anticipating this so that you have this whole kind of scaffold of the ramifications of your pushing back you've got it all in there and I guess if if we go through that scenario in our heads map it all the way out that can make you really quite formidable and prevail in the workplace environment Absolutely, because you don't come off as being reactionary. You don't come off as being, um, well, anything other than reactionary. I, I think You've got power. Right, because you've thought about it. And it sounds a bit, at first, when I teach these classes and teach these methods, it seems a bit cumbersome at first. But if you apply that to 
every facet, all the situations that you encounter in your life, it becomes absolutely automatic and it's very quick to do. And it's, it, it really is empowering. Okay. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I, well, actually, briefly, do you have confidence with the change in the national level leadership that these prerogatives are going to be appreciated and implemented? Well, I think, you know, bikini clad women eating hamburgers aside, I think... Pu- that's Puzzler. <laughs> Puzzler's ads, yeah. But I think that aside, at California, I don't think that we have much to worry about. We have a very uh, supportive governor. I think the administration is very much um, balanced. Um, some might disagree with me. But on the federal level, I think if you if you ascribe to this idea of a top-down culture permeating an organization then I think at the federal level, depending on what happens, I think, yes, there's room for concern Okay. that some of these protections could be weakened or compromised in some way. So, well, maybe you could come back and we can talk about as maybe some policy initiatives go through as, as things develop there. So let me give you a chance to let everybody know how they can reach you find your publications and seminars and lectures on your website and all those things. So we are on the web at sapphirelegal.com and it's spelled a little differently. It's S-A-F-F-I-R-E legal.com and through the website you can reach me via a comment section. There's a way to connect with me through the website. We have a resources page. Uh, We also have a list of our legal services on there as well and how to contact the firm. You can find us on LinkedIn and you can also find us on Facebook. And also there's our, we'll, and we'll do this in the PSA we're producing. There's eeoc.gov. And I don't know what that website looks like right now because lots of websites are getting manhandled here. And the, the defh.ca.gov for the, the California state one. Well, Teresa, I really appreciate your taking the time today. It's really good to get in front of the preventable. We got it just in the nick of time there for everybody involved. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. My guest was Teresa McQueen of Sapphire Legal, an employment lawyer and human resource consultant who also offers business etiquette and civility training folks. If you missed a portion of this or any other show, then you can catch me on KUCI.org or askaleader.com. This was my wrap. Next week, even though it's Black History Month, it's still, uh, we'll hear from it regardless. We'll have on Jean Shepper. UCI professor of gender and sexuality studies has a brand new book out. It's entitled Moving Performances, Divas, Icon is City, and Remembering the Modern Stage. She'll reprise early 20th century greats, Ada Overton Walker, Loa Fuller, Libby Holman, and Josephine Baker. You know the Beyonce's, Janelle Monae's of earlier days. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. (laughs) 